Welcome to the Hairdryer Treatment Podcast, powered by Kevin Grogan Soccer, Soccer Coffee and much more. Welcome to the show this week. We're delighted to have an interview with Stephen Finn. Stephen is the director of Futsal Ireland. He's also been predominantly involved in the media back home in Ireland, along with working in the Football Association of Ireland and is currently completing a course in psychology. He talks about player development. He talks about where Ireland is at in terms of player production. And he also talks about the psychological aspect of the game. We're also delighted to announce a major sponsor for the show, which is Rezzle, which is a virtual reality training system. And we're moving into an advert now that will describe more about that sponsor. And then we'll be straight into the interview with Stephen Finn. The Hairdryer Treatment Podcast is proudly sponsored by Rezzle. Rezzle is the market-leading, academically validated VR training and cognitive development tool for elite football and is already installed at world-leading clubs. Rezzle.com Hello Stephen, welcome to the show, how are you? Very good Kevin, how was everything in America? Very good, very good. Really appreciate you coming on. So why don't you start, Stephen, by just telling our listeners uh, where you grew up and your first memories of football? Well, I'm from a little village. Uh, well, it's a little village, but it's the fastest growing village in Ireland now uh, called Sagart, which is in Dublin, uh, out, uh, on the outskirts of the city. Um, it was basically a tiny village uh, surrounded by fields, but now it's uh, like a lot of small Irish towns got turned into uh, lots and lots of housing estates. But um, I lived a large part of my life then in uh, a neighbouring town called Talla, which would be famous uh, for producing footballers like Robbie Keane and Richard Dunn. They'd be probably the two most famous uh, products of Talla over the years. And I suppose like every kid, uh, just usually it's a case of... Uh, Somebody knocks on your door and says there's a football team being formed in the estate and uh, would I be interested? And that's how I was introduced to the game. And I think uh, when I look back on my own football career, uh, I wasn't a particularly good player. And a lot of it stems from essentially just falling into the game. My dad loved the game, but didn't know an awful lot about it, say the technical side of it. And... uh, kind of always had that frustration that I wasn't really particularly well coached when I was a kid. Uh, and, you know, that probably made my fascination with uh, how do you coach and how do you make players better um, stemmed from really looking back on the frustrations of myself. My own dad actually said to me one time when I was long retired that if uh, I had been coaching myself, as in I'd been exposed to somebody with the amount of knowledge I had when I was a, a youngster. I would have been a far better player and I kind of understand what he means because there's a lot of things that I really only learnt when I started doing my UEFA qualifications in around 99 as when I did my first uh, introductory level coach and it was almost like a brand new world that opened up to me. Um, so that was really how I got into sort of playing and coaching mostly. And then in relation to the badges you talked about, UA for badges, and I know you're highly qualified. Talk me about the process of doing them and, and what you learned and you know how many hours you had to log in in terms of educating yourself. 
Yeah, so 99 was when I did my first uh, course. It was a two-week intensive course, and then you had to do... Uh, so it was, it was basically nine in the morning till around eight at, at night for 14 days in a row. Uh, it was incredibly tiring by the end of it. Uh, and uh, fun, funnily enough, my son was born right in the middle of the uh, course. <laughs> I remember it was on a Tuesday. Uh I went to the hospital, uh, said hello to my baby, and then I returned back to the to the course, <laughs> uh, which probably doesn't say a lot about me uh, or where my priorities lay at the time. But uh, yeah, so then uh, that was my introductory level. You, you had to do a logbook then, and you, 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 I was coaching a few different teams, and then you do an assessment, uh, and then you progress to the next stage, and and then uh, at that size, UEFA were kind of trying to coordinate all of the coaching courses so that you know if you did uh, your UEFA B or whatever in one country it would be the same value and the same content as you would get in another country um, so the UEFA B uh, I think I did around 2003 that was quite interesting a uh, bit more intense than again similar that was basically two two blocks of two fortnights uh over two years and then similarly UEFA I qualified in 2007 um and that, that was really fascinating like every coach on the course uh bar myself has ended up uh, being a first day manager uh, in the league of Ireland at the very least um Les Reed who uh, is now the FA technical director in England he was the course coordinator with Noel O'Reilly, um, who I know you've mentioned before on the show and obviously a, a massive influence on me uh, as a coach. Um, they were the head shooters and uh, really fascinating uh, education for me. Uh, and same thing again, you have to do, you do all your hours in the classroom, on the pitch, but then you have to log uh, all the work that you're doing with your own team. So I suppose really in and around a 10-year period from start to finish, now, in Ireland, it, it always strikes me that there's some extremely talented coaches, um, including yourself, obviously. Is there a lack of kind of full-time coaching work in Ireland for a lot of these talented coaches? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably been the biggest frustration for people involved in Ireland. Like, I'm not being funny, but I know guys with pro licences, uh, which is the highest level. I haven't got to that stage yet uh, for a variety of reasons, most obviously being the money involved. But um, I know guys with pro licenses who aren't working with teams at all, who just have their day jobs to basically pay the bills because what people probably wouldn't be aware of from outside of Ireland is that essentially the football industry in Ireland is very, very small in the sense of a professional career. Like if you're lucky enough to be a good enough player, yes, you can play for a League of Ireland club, but the money wouldn't be enough to retire on. And then as a coach, obviously coaches' careers are very uh, precarious anyway. Uh, you know, you might be with a team for a year or two, the results go against you, you get let go, and there's no other pro opportunities in Ireland. Uh, there's only 20 clubs in the League of Ireland. Um, so there isn't a huge amount of opportunity for people to coach professionally for that to be their full-time job. Now, I know Niall Quinn kind of recently has talked about getting a group together, consortium, and maybe taking over kind of the League of Ireland with a view to developing, producing players, keeping them at home longer and also creating jobs for a lot of the top coaches back home. What are your views on that? 
Well, regardless of who does it, I genuinely believe we need to go down the route where we're making our own industry stronger. Like the reality is Ireland is a small country. The population is only four and a half million there, thereabouts. Also, we're a sports mad country. So like I know you've spoken before with other Irish uh, coaches who have mentioned the GAA. And what people need to understand is that essentially in Ireland, every small village has a GAA club, whether it's Gaelic football or hurling. And the local business people are knocked on the door by the hurling club, by the Gaelic football club. Then 10 minutes later, the soccer guys are knocking on the door looking for sponsorship. And then half an hour later, it's the rugby team. Like We, we really have a multi-sport uh, attitude to everything really in Ireland. And as a result, soccer, while I I think the, the facts are the soccer is the most popular sport, people think it's GAA, but like more people in the ESRI study uh, of sport, the sports ones, are more people play soccer than any other sport. Uh, in Ireland but people don't necessarily feel that their love of playing the game or love of watching whether it's watching the Irish national team or watching uh, Barcelona or watching the Premier League that doesn't necessarily uh, translate into then investing into uh, a professional industry and it's certainly where we need to go we need to have a situation where Irish people can be experts in their chosen sport which is soccer and then have a career in it, and whether that's young people as players uh, or coaches at an older level. So I definitely feel it's where we need to go. And, you know, I've mentioned uh, to you before about my blog, which uh, essentially I did an analysis of what other countries are doing in Europe in relation to Ireland. And it's very, very stark. Like if you take the under 21 team uh, from as far back as 1988, um, where we started playing competitively, um, more than 80% of the players in our squad were playing with clubs outside of Ireland. And if you compare that with the other countries in Europe, there's only 13% of the players. So like if you take Italy, I know Italy is a massive country, but like they might only occasionally have one player in their squad who doesn't play for an Italian club. Whereas with Ireland, it might only be one guy playing with an Irish club in the Irish under-21 team. And people think, oh, that's just with the big countries. But it's the same, even Iceland, even Norway, uh, even Sweden. Like They may have eight or nine uh, playing for foreign clubs, but they don't have what we've had. Like We've had campaigns where not one home-based player played in a competitive uh, under-21 game. So thankfully that's changed. Like The Irish under-21 team plays this Sunday with Stephen Kenny as their manager. And I think nine of that squad play for League of Ireland clubs and one plays for an Irish League club. So that's a, that's a great uh, step in the right direction uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, now I've obviously read your blog and, I, and it's brilliant and it's a great insight to kind of what's going on back home. Um, how, how does that change, Stephen? How do we get, like obviously Stephen Kenny's come in now and he's had a great career in League of Ireland as a coach and done very well domestically and in Europe. Is that what it takes someone like him to give these players a chance because the talent is there? Yeah, well, definitely. Stephen has proven with uh, his uh, successes with Dundalk and even previously with, with Bowes, uh, and uh, even when he was manager at Lanford, he got, uh, got a very good result in Europe, uh, that Irish players can compete against anybody. Like today, George under-19 team beat Romania 5-0 in the UEFA qualifier and there was four or five uh, home-based players on the pitch. Um, we have very, very good players here. They just need an opportunity and they just need... Uh, basically support uh, to go and actually play but the other thing is we need a cultural shift we need to be in a situation where we don't think 
that it's the best thing to send our children outside of Ireland to become professional footballers. I know that you did this and, and you've spoken uh, to many people about this and you, you, you've come to the conclusion that it's better to go as an adult. And I 100% believe that that is the case. Like, skip all this underage stuff. Who cares if a fella plays in an FA Youth Cup winning team? The, the facts don't support that that has any impact on whether they're going to become a full-time pro as an adult or win senior international caps. Like, let them go over as adults. I was lucky enough to visit Real Madrid uh, Academy in 2013 uh, as actually as part of a, a futsal uh, training programme which happened at the same time. So we, we managed to visit Real Madrid while we were there. And they told us that their research has shown that uh, a player is something like 80% more likely to become a full-time pro if he grew up within 30 kilometers of Madrid. So they basically changed how they uh, recruit the youngest players. They don't look all over Spain even to bring in their young kids. They have local kids. And when they're older, then they start bringing in maybe players from outside of Spain or across Spain. And like if it's good enough for Real Madrid, who produces a huge amount of professional players, uh, why can't it be good enough for us? to keep on producing our own players. And that's my view now. Yeah, and I think for, from my point of view, going later when you're more mature, particularly with the the mental aspect of the game, and I know you've been studying psychology, I mean, going very young, I mean, it is hard leaving home and, and getting into that cut pro environment at 15, homesickness and all that kind of stuff. Where do you stand with that? I mean, the, the mental aspect is a massive part of it, surely. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I'm in the last year of my psychology degree in DCU, and you know it was something that always been nagging away with me. Uh, I think the difference between those who achieve great things in their life uh, and those who fall short essentially is not necessarily down to their physical attributes, but more their mental strength. And you know we often see players play uh, at the highest level of sport, whether it's soccer or any other sport. And people go, that guy's not very good. He hasn't got a particularly good passing range. He's got hasn't got very good skills. He hasn't got very and they, people are writing all the things that they they think that that guy is hasn't got uh, the attributes to be a top player yet. They look at him then and they go, well, he's got like two hundred professional appearances under his belt. There must be something about that guy. And then what you realise it's their ability to perform under pressure consistently. It may not be uh, as good as Lionel Messi, but there's a lot of fantastic pros who've had fantastic careers and the reason why is because they've got resilience they've got mental strength they're secure in who they are and you know they're able to cope with the the roller coaster of emotions which being a, a professional sports person is and definitely i think that has improved by growing up with your family with your friends completing your education having a balanced approach to life and not putting everything into one uh, one, one basket I always make this point, you know, lots of people, especially in Ireland, uh, there's a street party when the kid goes off to join a professional uh, yeah. f- football team, but there's never a party when they come home. And it, in, in what other uh, sphere in life would that happen? Like, usually it's like the prodigal son returns. The party would be when you came home from abroad. But now in football, we have the party when they leave. I don't understand that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, such a great point. And um, and one of the things you said there, being secure in yourself. I mean, you leave home at fifteen or sixteen, going into a different environment. It is often hard to be secure in yourself. Where at nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, you're more mature, more of an adult, and you can adapt and deal with situations much better. So, 
I 100% agree with that. So in terms of, you know, where League of Ireland is at now, we've had some success in Europe. Players are getting better. And more players are getting international opportunities over the last five years or so. How do we get more players to stay and not kind of get uh, coaxed away at kind of 15 or 16? Well, uh, I think there's, if I knew the answer to that, I'd probably uh, be a very rich man. I think it's a slow process trying to get everyone pointing in the same direction, trying to get uh, agreement on, you know, like there's things about uh, our structures which annoy me. Like uh, the Ertris, the underage leagues are being fantastic. And I really think people who criticize them are just basically annoyed because their little uh, patch has been uh, trampled upon. But I still believe that, say, for example, if a kid is in one, especially in Dublin, it's not so relevant around the country. Uh, like if a kid is at Cork City uh, at under 13s, now the new league that started now, although I think it's too young personally, but anyway, if they go into that system, they're not likely to be jumping from Cork City to uh, Cove Ramblers or to Limerick or to Waterford every season. Whereas still in the moment in Dublin, we have the big Dublin clubs are all tripping all over each other to try and uh, take the best young kid from the other club rather than actually just sitting down and say, right, these are our guys. We're going to invest everything in developing them in the long term. And then there needs to be more of an agreement with the uh, League of Ireland clubs to actually leave their own players alone. If a kid is at Bowes, leave him at Bowes. If he's at Rovers, leave him at Rovers. It's not... They shouldn't be jumping from one team to the other uh, unless there's exceptional circumstances. And just to play on a winning team is not a good enough reason for me to jump from uh, one team to another. You, you, the the League clubs have to make sure then also though that they are providing uh, these players with uh, the right training facilities, the right uh, strength and conditioning, the right nutrition opportunities, the right level of coaching. And I think the coaches are very, very good, but sometimes they have to uh, try and coach in areas which aren't conducive to elite level uh, performance uh, and you know this is where they need to think like Shamrock Rovers have built a fantastic facility out in Roadstone um, which is providing that uh, you know all of their teams have a full size astro pitch to train on they have small sided pitches around it there's a gym being built I think next to it so you know that's what the example is and we need to see all of the other uh, clubs following suit whether it's by developing relationships with third level and so that, you know, they can use their facilities as well, uh, joined up thinking. There's a lots of little things that are that need to be done. Um, but the first thing I think is actually a collaboration rather than uh, competing with each other for players. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. Now, Stephen, you've, uh, you've been heavily involved in futsal over the years, which is a fantastic game. And talk to me a bit about where kind of futsal Ireland is and what the FAI have done and, and what the benefits of playing futsal are for young players. Yeah, it's funny, like America actually has a, has a longer uh, relationship with futsal uh, than Ireland does, but probably fin- uh, faced similar uh, obstacles along the way. Futsal, for people who aren't aware, although more people in football know it now, is a five-side game. It's professional. Uh, Spain, Brazil, Portugal, uh, they're Argentina, they'd be the strongest uh, teams 
in futsal at the moment. Um, the reason why the game is so uh, important to me is because, you know, I think it develops a huge confidence on the ball for players. They have to make many, many decisions in a tight space. They have to be technically good. They have to execute uh, their shots quickly. They have to execute their passes quickly. Sometimes they have to dribble and they're surrounded by three or four opponents and they have to try and think of ways to maintain possession or create an opportunity for a teammate. So it's all the things that you associate with a good football player, but in a hothouse environment of a really tight area and you have... You know, a very good soccer player might touch the ball 30 times in a match, whereas in a futsal game, you might get that in five minutes, you know. So yeah. uh, just from touches of the ball, that's fantastic. From futsal Ireland point of view, uh, myself and yourself uh, worked together on a few things uh, many years ago. And essentially, I've now got to the stage where I'm just trying to work on the awareness point of view, let people know about the game. Um, again, probably because the environment is so small, you've got the same people competing with each other and they just want to win this adult level. But from the development point of view, uh, the FEI were quite supportive of futsal for a five, six year uh, period. But then when the financial uh, crash happened, uh, a lot of uh, programmes got paired back and unfortunately futsal was one of them. So now what we have in Ireland is we have uh, some schools competitions which are very well run by the FEI's uh, schools uh, department and then certain leagues have uh, futsal initiatives for under 10s, under 9s, under 8s which is brilliant but what I'd like is that became part of our culture where from essentially December, January, February, even March uh, every year our kids were just playing futsal and then you know, to go uh, to go uh, to work in conjunction with the calendar year soccer season, then um, when the pitches are a little bit better, when the evenings are longer and they can train in the evenings after school or whatnot, uh, I think then we'd have a perfect uh, mix of a futsal culture and a football culture. Now, uh, you worked with the FEI for a while, um, and you know John Delaney, the chief executive, he gets a bit of a hard rap sometimes. But I have a feeling that he does do a lot of good stuff behind the scenes. What was your kind of insight into him and, and what he did in the FAI or does in the FAI? Yeah, look, he's a massive personality. Uh, a lot of attention focused upon him. So, you know, I think Irish people generally don't like people who seem to be getting too big for their station. Um, so probably any mistakes he makes get jumped on. Him. Uh, you know, there's also that familiarity breeds contempt. He's been there for a long time. So there'd be a lot of frustration from certain people who prefer to see maybe uh, the head of an organisation being rotated a little bit more often. So I can understand uh, those who don't particularly like him and would rather uh, there was a fresh face in charge of the association but I do think that a lot of small clubs would uh, speak very, very highly of him. He's done an awful lot. You know, every weekend he'd be down at the opening of a clubhouse or uh, presenting medals at a blitz or something. He, he definitely does uh, impact on people who probably don't have a very high profile and probably doesn't get an awful lot of credit for that. Uh, there are certain aspects of how uh, he's he's led the FAI, which uh, probably 
don't get as much credit as I do, like especially the relationship with the uh, the councils where there's development officers based all over the country. Like that was set in 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 place before he took the role, but he built on it by building relationships. And you know, he's a very political animal. Uh, there's no question about it, um, and he does use that to his advantage. Um, but I think you have to be fair and say that he's done a lot of good things, but there's also aspects of his decision making which has frustrated people. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it'd be very interesting to see how long he stays in the role. I know he's doing a, a lot with UEFA, um, and you'd probably think that's a natural progression point for him in due course. Uh, because he's very popular outside of Ireland, uh, probably like a lot of people where, uh, you know, uh, in your own country, you're not hugely uh, popular, but other people uh, would see you in a different light than those people who, who work with you on a more regular basis. But I suppose like everybody, he has his pluses and he also has his areas where uh, it annoys people. So I'd be kind of fairly even-handed on him. Uh, I, I found him all right to work with. So from my point of view, I didn't really have any great issues with him. Um, I do think that, you know, from the association as a whole, uh, regardless of whether it's the CEO or anyone else, there probably needs to be a real vision of what we want Irish football to look like. Um, and I think there's been a lot of changes made uh, without having that vision sold to us. And I'd love to see a very clear pathway of what we want Irish football to look like 20 years from now, 10 years from now, because um, I think that drives uh, all areas of the game. Um, and the other thing as well that I think that the FAI doesn't get enough credit for is, like, we, uh, we've we seen, like, so many amazing things and little, like I said, little parishes, but, like, you know, parachair football, amputee football, uh, Special Olympics, like, big big story this week, the Special Olympics are on. It's the football team that's getting a load of attention. They won a bronze medal yesterday. Um, soccer is definitely the most inclusive sport in Ireland. Um, anyone can play it. And, you know, they try uh, and provide people with every single background with an opportunity to play. Um, it doesn't always have to be about the elite level but by the same token we would like to see our elite level be better than it is yeah i feel people kind of don't really see all the great work they're doing because they're so focused on the kind of glamour of, of the elite side of things and you were in the fei during the keen and o'neill reign correct yeah yeah i was there yeah and how um where do you sit on that i mean personally i think they they did a very good job up to maybe the end of the, the, the last year was a bit tough but I think people forget very quickly kind of the European Championships and how good they did there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think like everything, uh, like it's talking about uh, John Delaney, there's pluses and minuses and people only ever focus on the minuses. I found uh, Martin O'Neill a gentleman actually and I think a lot of times our, our vision of uh, a person is based on what we see of them in television and there's no doubt that you know some of his post-match interviews uh he was fairly spiky um but like people also have to bear in mind how difficult it is to get results like Ireland beat Germany and drew with them uh in the qualifying campaign uh that's an incredible achievement given their resources and our resources so definitely there was a period where um Martin and Roy got a lot more out of the team than probably uh 
they had any right to do. But where I got frustrated at the end was I felt that um, they needed to evolve their tactics. They needed to be a little bit more uh, encouraging of possession football and passing football. Now, whether this is down to the management or whether it's down to the players, whether there wasn't uh, an environment created where the fellas could feel that they could try and pass the ball and if they made a mistake, it wasn't the end of the world. I don't know. I wasn't in the dressing room, so I don't know what the management was saying to the players. Um, and I think you're right. And it was in the back end of that last cam- qualifying campaign uh, that it started to unravel a little bit after a, a reasonably good start. Um but, you know, at the end of the day, I think Martin uh, and Roy will probably look back in their time Ireland and say that uh, I, on, a, on balance, they're happy with what they did. Um, but I think nearly every football manager ends up leaving uh, leaving too too late. The, the cleverest football manager leaves on a high. Um, and we saw that with nearly every Ireland manager over uh, the last uh, 20 years. Uh, they always stay on for one more campaign where if they had left on a high, everyone would have been sad to see them go. Um, but their reputation would have been very, very strong. So, um, yeah, look, I think the style of football got a little bit uh, frustrating, but overall the achievements uh, in the first uh, first three years are very, very good. And then Mick McCarthy obviously back in there and Stephen Kenny, the, the plan is for him to take over um, after this campaign. He's currently with the U21s. Do you agree with that structure, that it's Mick McCarthy now and then Stephen Kenny afterwards? Um, well, look, I, I wouldn't have made that decision myself because I just think that both managers are really excellent and I didn't really agree with the, the decision at the time. Um, I would have just felt, you know, if Stephen uh, was going to be the senior manager, make him the senior manager. If Mick was going to be the senior manager, make him the senior manager. Pick between one of them. Um, but the position is as, it's, as it is now and I know that Stephen will give the under-21 job uh a serious go. Uh, Ireland have never qualified for European or 21 championships before, so there's definitely a chance to make history there. There's a, an exciting group of young players coming through, despite people's belief that Ireland hasn't produced players. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of exciting young players coming through. Like I mentioned, under 19s won today 5 0 against Romania. If they could qualify for their under 19 finals, that'd be the first time since 2011. That would be, uh, that would really signal how strong uh, we are in terms of young guys coming through. Um, so there's definitely an awful lot to be uh, enthusiastic about there. Um, by the same token, then uh, Mick has come in. Um, he's freshened things up a little bit. Like he's shown already a bit of uh, faith by uh, appoint, uh, promoting uh, Josh Cullen um, for the first time. Also bringing Jack Bourne in um, from Shamrock Rovers, which I think is uh, at least a sign that, you know, going to see League Warren games uh, isn't just uh, a token gesture. He can actually see players who can contribute because I think the reality is that for the players over the age of 21, the players between, say, 22, 23 and 32, 33, you can nearly nearly throw a blanket over a huge amount of them. There's a lot of really good pros, but there's very few real standout players so it's there for any player who's playing who's Irish eligible who thinks that they can force their way into Mick McCarthy's team to actually go and do it because there's really only four or five uh, that you would say well if everybody turns up they'll always get picked Um, it might even be less than that but um, I think you know 
we'll see over the coming weeks uh, how we start the, the senior qualifying campaign. We obviously will be expecting a win in Gibraltar. That's not uh, being smart. It's just the reality that, you know, we have to beat Gibraltar and then we've got Georgia at home. And I think uh, we'll have a good idea of what the team looks like in the short term after those two games. But then uh, the serious stuff starts in June. And uh, I think it's going to be a very, very tough qualifying campaign. But we're co-hosts next year. So we really, really want to be in the finals next year. So uh, I just hope it goes well. Absolutely. And then where do you stand on the whole kind of declaring Irish, declaring English? And there's been lots of talk about that lately, obviously. Um, you know, players having grandparents that are Irish and playing for Ireland underage and then switching to England later on. Where where are you at with that? Yeah, well, certainly, uh, look, I would have always been interested in why players play for one country over another. Like, I'll even take my own family. I've got first cousins in England who consider themselves Irish and who others, first cousins who consider themselves English. They both have uh, the both come from the same family as me. My grandmother was my grandmother. Uh, so they, they're, as, uh, they're the exact same as me as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, where they grow up, the influences in their life, where they go to school, impacts on their sense of nationality. But I think from an Irish perspective, this is a, a big area where we've totally relied on the Clarys, as I, as I like to call them, uh, way too much. Like nearly 30% of the players who played for our under-21s uh, were the Clarys. And like, that sounds uh, like an OK number until you consider that of the teams that played in the UEFA under-21 finals in the same period, less than 2% of the players are the Clarys. So like, really, uh, we're relying on something which... Uh, it isn't it hasn't worked not enough of them are winning senior caps not enough of them are then winning many caps so from that perspective I would much rather we really worked on developing our own players and if a guy comes in at a later point who has said like say breaks through a first team level and he's got an Irish family background and he wants to play for Ireland great and you know this thing about oh, a fellow played underage for England and then he switched to Ireland where second choice I don't get that as the rules currently stand it's actually more logical for us to wait until a fella has been capped by another country and then bring him back into our system than what we just discovered with, with Declan Rice, where he played with us from 16s up to senior. Like, he won three senior caps and then he switches. Like, that's very, very frustrating. And all I can think of is every every kid who didn't get picked because Declan Royce did in those exact matches has missed out on that experience in their career. So from that point of view, uh, I don't see the point in us picking players who could could jump ship. We should be picking players who can't jump ship either. They're hundred uh, percent Irish uh, or Irish born, or uh, or they've basically, as a real stand, can't switch to another country because they've already come to us. And then we'd see less of this situation where players are winning underage caps for Ireland and then jumping ship. We don't want this to happen. And, you know, I, I spoke to you before about America essentially has gone down the same route uh, with a lot of um, players uh, of, you know, other nationalities coming in. Um, and, and you know what? I just don't th- don't think it really benefits them. Okay, uh, they've produced, they've got some really good players who've, who've played in World Cups for them and everything. But produce your own players. Like, have confidence in in your ability to make uh, make those players better and to wear the national team shirt with pride. 
uh, and and that's where I stand on that issue. Yeah, and then just kind of lastly, Stephen, because we're, we're running out of time here, but just going back to yourself, I mean, you've so much to offer, you know, football or soccer, and, you know, where, where are you at with your career and kind of your pathway, and what, what's kind of the end game for you? Because as I said, I think you've so much to offer football globally, and, and particularly in Ireland, because that's where you're based. Yeah, it's, to be honest with you, I am a, at a little bit of a crossroads. I have to get this uh, psychology degree finished, so I'm in the middle of research and elite uh, coaches, elite level coaches to see if their personality traits impact upon their leadership uh, skills. So, you know, I'm really stuck into that. So I've taken a break from coaching for the last uh, year, basically. Um, my wife ha- ha- had a little uh, little girl in August, which is uh, my third uh, child. So uh, I'm a family man as well. Uh, but once I get past uh May, I'm definitely going to look at the next phase uh, for me. Um, like I do think I have a lot to offer as a coach or as part of maybe as an academy director um, in the right environment. I would consider going anywhere in the world for the right opportunity. Uh, America has been of interest to me. Um, again, if the right opportunity came uh, and I felt it was the right uh group of people who were happy to maybe take the more holistic perspective um i would definitely uh i'd love i'd love to work full-time uh with players but as we mentioned at the start you know working full-time with players in ireland is very very difficult uh working for the association has is essentially the only real well not as one of the few real opportunities to work full-time in coaching Ireland, but you don't have the players full-time because they're with their clubs so to be with a full-time club maybe to be part of uh developing players uh over a longer period and that certainly interests me um so from that point of view, I think I'll take stock uh, this summer and really consider uh, what my next step is. A few of the League of Ireland clubs uh, have intimated to me that they'd like me to get involved, um, but I've told them all the same thing, that I'd like to take uh, get my studies completed and then uh, consider the next step then. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, as I said, you've so much to offer the game and I'd love to get you over to America sometime to do some seminars over here and... Um, you know, I also want to thank you for all the help you gave me when kind of things didn't work out for me. You're one of the guys that definitely helped me through a tough period. And it's been great having you on the show, Stephen. And I would love to get you back on. Anytime. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. The Hairdryer Treatment Podcast is proudly sponsored by Rezzel. Rezzel is the market-leading, academically validated VR training and cognitive development tool for elite football and is already installed at world-leading clubs. Rezzel.com